Welcome to New Thinking for a New World, a Tilburg Foundation podcast. I am Alan Stoga, your host. Each week, I bring you conversations with people who think differently about the great issues that are shaping our world. Geopolitics, disruptive tech, mass migration, the changing climate, culture wars, all of it is grist for our mill. I hope you enjoy listening. I also hope you will let me know what you think and that you join the conversation at telbergfoundation.org. And now for today's episode of New Thinking for a New World. Two years ago, Russia invaded Ukraine, actually for the second time in recent history. Before then, in 2014, Russia's little green men had pushed the Ukrainians out of Crimea. Then the world more or less ignored Russian aggression. Today, there are debates about whether or not a Russian victory over Ukraine, whatever that actually would mean, might be a down payment on a Russian assault on NATO itself. The war has shifted from failed Russian blitzkrieg to valiant Ukrainian defense and then recovery to unsuccessful Ukrainian counteroffensive and now to a war of attrition where Russia's much greater weight is beginning to take its toll, perhaps regardless of Western support. So what's next? My guest today has some clear ideas about the balance of forces, the risk, maybe the possibility of a Russian victory, and the contours of a potential negotiation that could possibly lay the groundwork for renewed peace in Europe. George Beebe is the director of the Grand Strategy Program at the Quincy Institute in Washington. He spent more than two decades in the United States government and is deeply grounded in Russian realities. He and co-author Anatole Levine recently published a must-read analysis entitled The Diplomatic Path to a Secure Ukraine that I urge you to read. You will find a link on our website to the paper. Welcome, George, to New Thinking for a New World. Thank you very much. Let's start with the facts in the ground. You write, I quote, the war is not trending toward a stable stalemate, but toward Ukraine's eventual collapse. That certainly has not been the official narrative out of Washington or Brussels. Now, for example, I just read something today from a former NATO secretary general that an outright Ukrainian victory is still possible. How do you see the correlation of forces on the battlefield as the war enters its third year? What Ukraine has tried to do is to turn this into a war of maneuver, a war where they could take advantage of Western high technology, precision guided weapons, um, Western uh, 24-7 real-time intelligence, um, and uh, basically overcome Russia's advantages of scale. And Russia is a much larger co- uh, country. It's It's got almost five times the population, a much larger economy, much greater military industrial capacity. So you don't win a war of attrition against you know, a much larger, much more capable opponent like Russia. You've got to outmaneuver it. The analogy is not all that dissimilar to the U.S. Civil War, where the North had all kinds of advantages in population and industry, the South had better uh, generalship. Uh, They were uh, tactically uh, uh, superior to the North, and their hope was to outmaneuver the North. And uh, eventually, after a a period where they performed well beyond their expectations, the advantages that the North had uh, exerted themselves. And I think that's what we're seeing in the war right now. 
Uh, Ukraine's counteroffensive last year was its shot at turning this into a war of maneuver, breaking through Russian defenses, forcing the Russians to uh, sue for peace. And that didn't work. The Russians were able to build quite formidable defenses that um, really quickly uh, blunted the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. And this war has become a war of attrition. Uh, and the Russians are, I think, quite steadily exhausting Ukraine's supplies of manpower. They have drained a lot of the West's stockpiles of arms and ammunition. And most of what we sent Ukraine uh, in the first year, year and a half of the war uh, was equipment and ammunition that we had in our inventories on the shelf. It's not new manufacture. Uh, and most of that is gone now. The, the, to the degree to which we take stuff off the, the shelves now, it actually compromises America's war readiness for other contingencies in the world. And as we're seeing in the Middle East right now, and as many people have talked about vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, there are other contingencies that we have to be prepared for. So uh, we're, we're in a situation where we don't have a lot to provide anymore, and that's having its effect. We've got to address the question before we move on. The conventional wisdom in Washington and elsewhere, at least among some policymakers and certainly politicians, is that, George, you're wrong. All we need to do is give them the next new technology, whether it's the F-16s or the Attackums or whatever. We just have to not just keep them in the fight, but put them over the top with technology. And if we do that, then they'll win. I would argue it is a red herring, but there you go. Why don't you take a whack at the red herring? Well, I agree it is a red herring. The idea is that quality can overcome quantity. And, you know, the old saying is that, you know, quantity has a quality all of its own, and that's where the Russians are right now. Um, the Russians have over 1,100 aircraft in their air force. The Ukrainians have less than 200. Um, the numbers of F-16s that we're talking about providing to the Ukrainians number in the dozens at best. So, you know, you're still going to end up in a situation, even if you provide something like the F-16, which is, you know, far from our, you know, top, top of the line aircraft, um, you're still going to wind up in a situation where the Russians vastly outnumber Ukraine in the skies. Air defense ammunition is another area where the Ukrainians are, are really hurting right now. And we have provided them with some Patriot air defense batteries. We have nowhere near enough Patriot batteries to cover the Ukrainian territory. We can give them a few that they can use to protect high-value targets, but nowhere near enough to really prevent the Russians from taking advantage of their superiority in the skies. Um, so, you know, there's not a wonder weapon out there that's going to change the correlation of forces in this, this battle. You know, the, the Russians supposedly, if, if uh, we provide uh, Ukraine with long-range strike capabilities so that the Ukrainians can strike, you know, deep into Russian territory proper, uh, the, uh, the conventional wisdom on that uh, uh, goes that Russia would then say, oh, this is just too much. We need to find a way out of this war. 
I think by far the more likely reaction is that the Russians use what is vast superiority in long-range strikes and really takes it to the Ukrainians in a way that they haven't so far. And the reason why they haven't is they don't want to see this war escalate into a direct confrontation between Russia and NATO. Very dangerous scenario. Let me pull on that that thread because that is the other, I would argue again, I think it's red herring, but many do not, that if we, we air quotes in the word we, don't stop the Russians in Ukraine, next stop is Estonia or, or perhaps Warsaw, Paris, et cetera, that you would, you would somehow escalate from a Russian victory, whatever that is defined as in Ukraine, to a confrontation with NATO. Why is that argument not compelling to you? I think at a very fundamental level, leaving aside intentions, the Russians just aren't capable of taking on NATO. They're, they're vastly outnumbered. Their supply lines would be long and precarious. Um, probably the first thing that NATO would do would be to impose a, a naval blockade on Russia, which we're perfectly capable of doing. Um, that would cripple the Russian economy, its ability actually to, to export oil and the things that are the lifeblood of the Russian economy. Um, and they would be attacking countries where their motivation would be you know, poor. Uh, in Ukraine, the Russians uh, have convinced themselves that um, they are fighting against a NATO offensive, that NATO – uh, in Ukraine is uh, attempting ultimately to to deal a strategic defeat to Russia. And you know, a lot of Russians consider parts of Ukraine traditionally Russian territory. But the Russians have their hands full in Ukraine with short logistic lines on Russia's border, on territory that they're very familiar with, on an issue where they have you know a fair amount of motivation. I doubt that there are many Russians that want to go fight against Germany or Poland or, or the Baltic states. They, they consider those foreign territories. And I doubt Russia has the capability. They, they've really had their hands full in Ukraine. And if they manage to come out of Ukraine with some semblance of a victory, it's not going to be complete. The Russians can't occupy all of Ukraine. It's just beyond their capability. They would need an army many times the size of the invasion force they have right now um, to conquer it. And then they would have to occupy and govern it for many years. And that would be hostile territory. You know, they, if, if, if nothing else, the Russians have succeeded in convincing Ukrainians to hate them. So you know, occupying and governing a country like that is a very tall order. Um, and if the Russians can't do that, how can you imagine that they're going to invade a NATO country and and uh, take on the United States with all its capabilities as part of that? The core of your paper is that it is in everyone's interest to find some kind of a negotiated settlement at some point. The obvious question is, what do the three main participants, Ukraine, Russia, and the West, and for a moment, let's keep the West together as U.S. and, and Europe, perhaps NATO. What do those three main participants want or need from a settlement? Can you run through each of those in turn? Well, sure. And I'll caveat this by saying that wants and needs are oftentimes different. And Fair point. Um, those wants can vary depending on one's fortunes on the battlefield at any given time. Um, 
what do they need fundamentally, I think, the, the must-haves? Well, Ukraine needs to have a secure, independent country in which it's, it's able to be sovereign and, and to conduct its affairs internally as it sees fit. Um, and that, of course, has been under threat. The Russians, and particularly in their initial bid to invade Kiev and, and put uh, what was almost certainly going to be a puppet government in place, threatened that independence and sovereignty in a very profound way. So that is something that has to be addressed uh, in any kind of settlement. Um, now, what did the Russians need? The Russians, of course, are convinced that they're not just fighting Ukraine, that this is not just a bilateral conflict, that this is, in fact, uh, a much wider conflict with the United States and NATO over uh, a perceived effort by the West to exclude Russia from Europe to exclude Russia as a player in European security, and ultimately to move the NATO alliance right up to Russia's borders, surround it, and you know, strangle it. Uh, and in so doing, foment regime change or cripple the Russian economy, uh, prevent Russia from being a great power in the world. Um, and the Russians, for a lot of reasons, don't believe they can survive unless they are a great power, which is a almost a separate issue in and of itself that we could talk about at length. Um, now, what does the United States, what does the West need in all of this? More than anything, I think we need a stable European security environment in which Western states can thrive as free, democratic, liberal polities. Um, in other words, we need a European security environment that is safe or democracy, uh, to uh, to use an old turn of phrase. Um, now, can we do that by defeating Russia? I don't think so. Russia is not going to go away, and it's not suddenly going to come under new liberal management that we feel like we can you know, deal with. Uh, we're going to have to deal with Russia as it is, and that means we're going to have to find a way to achieve a stable balance in Europe in which Russia is is one of the poles uh, in that balance. Um, beyond that, I think we need to be trying to aim toward a balance of power in the world, a world that's becoming more multipolar, a world in which China is becoming quite a prominent player. And Chinese power itself needs to be counterbalanced. Um, and we're, you know, as a result of... Uh, a lot of factors, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we're facing a situation in the world where Russia and China are increasingly working together as partners against the United States. So um, we, we need to be aiming toward a more stable order uh, in which Russian power, Chinese power are counterbalanced. But these are not countries that we can defeat uh, militarily, that we're not going to be able to eliminate them as players. We have to aim toward management of this problem, not solving the problem, so to speak. Let's start with the Russia-Ukraine piece of that, because they're the actual combatants. And of course, borders will matter. The Russians insist, as you've said, for uh, historic reasons, for ethnic reasons, for all sorts of reasons that at least Crimea and the east of Ukraine, uh, are Russian. Um, 
and that there are no circumstances, President Putin has repeatedly said, under which they'd even imagine leaving that territory. On the other hand, a bit like FDR's unconditional surrender, President Zelensky has repeatedly insisted on unconditional victory. It's all or nothing. Now, negotiation declarations tend to end once the talking starts, but do those two extreme conditions, all or nothing, have to somehow disappear even to get anywhere near defining what a negotiation might be? And if so, how? Well, um, I don't think some sort of territorial compromise is necessary to bring this war to a stable end. Um, and I'll, I'll point out that uh, after the Soviet Union incorporated the Baltic states uh, into its territory, the United States government never recognized that incorporation. Every U.S. government map during the Cold War contained an inset saying the United States has not recognized the incorporation of the Baltic states into the Soviet Union. Did that prevent us from reaching understandings with the Soviet Union that were in our mutual interest that helped to stabilize that Cold War competition, prevent it from spiraling into a, a real war? Uh, that was something we were still able to do. And, and I think that's the model that I would advocate for dealing with the Ukrainian territorial issue. It's clear to me at this point that the Ukrainians are not going to be able to take back that territory on the battlefield. And it's clear to me that the Russians are not going to give it up at the negotiating table. So we're probably going to be in a situation where we will have a fait accompli that we do not have to address in order to stabilize the war. Now, is Ukraine going to have to learn to live with a situation that it doesn't officially recognize, but uh, you know, in reality it has to deal with? Yeah, I think that's probably going to have to be a part of this. The same thing is true in North Korea. There's never been a territorial settlement of that war. Same thing is true in Cyprus. So there, there are precedents for this. Um, I think if we're going to head toward a ending of this war in a stable way, you don't start with territory, that's going to be a dead end. I think you have to start with a bigger geostrategic issues that are at the root of this confrontation. Um, and that is the West's insistence that Ukraine must be a part of the NATO alliance and Russia's insistence that it must not be. Um, that is not the only issue at, at uh, stake in this war, but it is one of the most important. And that's something that we have to address. The Telberg Foundation has a deep commitment to encouraging global values-based leadership wherever we can find it. With the Telberg Leaders Mentoring Leaders Program, we are looking to identify and nurture emerging leaders with outsized potential. TLML aims to leverage the Telberg Foundation's global network to accelerate emerging leaders' growth and impact. Are you someone, or do you know someone, who should be part of the TLML program? Applications will be accepted for March 15th. Go to telbergfoundation.org for more information. You very carefully, a moment ago, in your description of what Ukraine needs did not use the word neutrality. You did use the word independence. 
And that is a critical distinction because what you just implied is that the issue, we've talked about territory briefly, but the issue of neutrality is going to be critical, perhaps even more so and perhaps even more difficult than territory. Well, um, yeah. Now, that sounds like a yeah, but. Well, the Russians, I don't think, are going to stop fighting unless they have dealt with this issue of, of uh, Ukraine's potential military alliance with the United States in one way or the other. Um, their preferred way would be for the United States to essentially say, guess what, we're, we're not going to bring uh, Ukraine into the NATO alliance, nor are we going to offer some sort of bilateral military alliance to the Ukrainians that would uh, involve some sort of uh, defense guarantee. That's what the Russians have asked for. It's what we've refused to do. Um, if the Russians can't get that, then I think plan B is, well, we'll simply wreck Ukraine. We will uh, so devastate uh, Ukraine physically uh, and economically that Ukraine won't be able to rebuild. You know, these millions of refugees that have fled will not return. Uh, Ukraine will go into a perhaps terminal uh, swoon uh, that will leave it looking a lot more like Libya than it will like Poland or or Germany. Um, and that will render uh, Ukraine unfit for a military alliance with anyone. Um, now, is that Russia's preferred solution to this problem? I don't think so. Um, because you know that leaves a gaping wound in Europe that will inevitably have consequences for Russia as well as for the EU and NATO. So I don't think that's their ideal solution. But if they can't get the other, uh, if they can't get some sort of understanding on uh, at least military uh, non-alliance, uh, then um, that's where they're going to go. Now, would Russia agree to Ukrainian membership in the EU? I think so. Um, they've said so at this point uh, when they were negotiating with Ukraine early in this uh, war after the invasion in, in uh, 2022. They put down on paper that they would not oppose Ukrainian membership in the EU. And a number of Russian officials have said that explicitly publicly. Now, why not? I, I think the reason is if EU membership is not linked to NATO and th therefore not linked to a military presence by the United States uh, in Ukraine, they're a lot more comfortable with uh, Ukraine feeling you know, economically and culturally a part of Europe. And, you know, uh, I, I think the other thing is um, a... Uh, a more, uh, a less corrupt, less ethno-nationalist Ukraine, which is something that the Russians claim to want. EU membership, or at least the process of accession, actually facilitates that. You know, the EU itself will put pressure on the Ukrainians in those areas. So that that's not incompatible with what Russia wants out of this war. In effect, you're making a distinction between economics and perhaps culture on the one hand, and political military, on the other hand, and a solution that might be imagined that separates those two in a way that 
could be acceptable in some future time to both the Ukrainians and the Russians, never mind the rest of us. Yeah, I think that's right. I want to come back to the larger context, because that is the other piece of what you've said and what you lay out in your paper, that there is a geopolitical context here. It is, and certainly in the Russian mind, it's about U.S.-Russia. It may also be about Russia-China. It may be about U.S.-China. And we have hogtied ourselves, we the United States so far, we the West so far, by saying it's up to the Ukrainians to negotiate. That's the issue. There is no geopolitical context. That strikes me, unless we can break the, and I should put this as a question, if we can't break the back of that, does that mean we can't get to a negotiating framework that makes any sense whatsoever? Well, yeah, I would tend to agree with you. If if, uh, if our position is going to continue to be that this is a bilateral conflict between Ukraine and Russia, uh, NATO has nothing to do with this, the United States has nothing to do with it, then we are not going to get to a solution. In part because the Russians believe that this is not just between them and NATO, they, they, uh, them and uh, Ukraine, they believe that uh, this is fundamentally uh, a a conflict between Russia and the United States, and incompatible conceptions of what the European security order ought to look like. So, if we're not willing to address that, then I think you know one of the the root causes of the conflict will be ignored. And we're going to wind up in a much different situation. Not a good one. Now, sooner or later, I think we're going to have to come to grips with that. As we speak, the issue of not just the day, but the week, the month, is continued American support, financial and military support for Ukraine. And it's tied up in so many knots to Sunday in in, in the Congress that it's hard to imagine how how it moves. But nonetheless, I want to ask you what role, putting all the details aside, what is the importance from your strategic perspective of continued or not continued American financial and and military assistance? Does it matter? Well, yeah, I do. I think it matters quite a bit. Um, If you take Uh, as a starting point, that there needs to be a a negotiated settlement of this war, Um, then Ukraine's ability to continue fighting um, is critical to that. Otherwise, you know, Ukraine will simply collapse and we're not in a negotiation at that point. We're in a situation where the Russians dictate the terms of a settlement. Um, And those terms are not likely to be ones that we like. And they're probably not likely to be stable terms, ones that uh, all the parties to this uh, conflict agree serve their interests. And that's a formula for future instability. So I'm of the opinion that we need to continue supporting the Ukrainians economically and militarily, but as part of a broader diplomatic strategy for bringing this war toward a settlement. One thing to continue this in the belief that Ukraine can win the war and no concessions will be necessary, we'll get everything that that we want. I think that's an illusion, um, not realistic at all. It's quite another to say, you know, this support is critical to a broader strategy 
um, that's connected not just to ending the war in Ukraine, but to establishing a stable, manageable balance within Europe and within the world more broadly. And, and I do think it's in the U.S. interest for Russia to have a, a much less cooperative relationship with China. Not that I think we'll be able to drive a wedge between the two of them. It's too late for that. But um, we we certainly could facilitate a situation in which Russia is less dependent on China, more able to act with autonomy in the world, and is a separate balance, a separate pole within this multipolar world that to some degree constrains China's freedom of maneuver uh, and counterbalances growing Chinese power. That's not where we're headed right now, but that's where we need to be going. And uh, settling the war in Ukraine is one stop uh, in, uh, in that direction. We've gotten this far in our conversation and barely mentioned President Putin. As recently as the Tucker Carlson interview, Putin again said, he said it repeatedly, that he's open to negotiation. Do you believe him? Well, yeah, I do. Um, now, why is that? It's not because I trust Putin <laughs> to be transparent. Belief is not trust. Those are two different words. Right. But because it's in Russia's interest to do that. Right now, the Russians think they have the upper hand on the war, and I think they do. Um, and you know, when a country has the upper hand in a war, it's got to make a calculation. If I keep fighting, is my my position going to get better over time? Um, and and you know, I think it probably will. Uh, I think the Russians have good reason to think they can do more on the battlefield than they've done. But also, I think they've got to calculate down the road: would a diplomatic settlement serve my interests better than pursuing and and elusive, unconditional victory on the battlefield, which I think is beyond Russia's reach. And and that's, I think, the big incentive that the Russians have to actually seek a settlement. They probably can conquer a lot more territory in Ukraine than they have. They could turn Ukraine into a wreck if they felt that they had to, to prevent its military alliance with the United States. But they cannot fight their way into a, a recognized, legitimate role in Europe's security situation. Um, they they can't uh, restore a normal relationship with the West, which will be necessary for Russia to have a normal economy at some point, not just a you know a heavily militarized economy as they're they're heading toward right now. And and it will also be necessary so that they reduce their dependence on China. Uh, if Russia wants to be a great power in the world, which I, I think it does, you know, it can't uh, aspire simply to be China's junior partner uh, you know, for decades down the road. That's where Russia is heading unless it's able to find some detente uh, with the United States and Europe. So that broader geostrategic set of interests is, I think, the biggest incentive the Russians have for talking. That also gives the U.S. some leverage that we should take advantage of in trying to bring this war in Ukraine to an end. Then we have to spend at least a moment on President Zelensky, uh, who's clearly going to be president for some time. Why should he, in your judgment, be willing to move towards negotiations now? 
Well, because I think it's quite clear that Ukraine's situation in the battlefield is not going to get better with time. It's probably going to get worse. In fact, the peak of what Ukraine probably could have achieved in this war was reached last year sometime. So why should he seek a settlement this time? Because the longer he waits, the worse Ukraine's position is likely to be, the more territory it's likely to lose, the more formidable a challenge it will have in reconstructing uh, the country and attracting war refugees back to the country, which is you know absolutely critical to have any kind of a you know a prosperous future. Um, so uh, Zelensky has a problem that he has tended to box himself in rhetorically on what uh, Ukraine is willing to do. Uh, he's going to have to find a way to extricate himself from the the political position that his rhetoric has created. And whether he can do that or not, or whether it's going to be some other successor, uh, remains to be seen. Um, I'm not sure it's clear that Zelensky is going to be in power for you know years to come in Ukraine. I think there are some signs of real friction within uh, Ukraine's political elites, uh, and his popularity is in fact diminishing. Uh, let me end with this. I really do want to congratulate you and Anatole on producing this work. It wasn't that long ago that Henry Kissinger and others were aggressively attacked for even mentioning the notion that there'd have to be a negotiated outcome, as there always is to conflict and war. That said, do you think at this moment there's any serious willingness we talked about Moscow, but in Washington, in Kiev, Brussels, Berlin, Paris, Warsaw, and London? To consider diplomacy? Well, um, despite the public rhetoric, which gives almost no indications that there's any flexibility in the West in pursuing a settlement, I think behind the scenes, there are a number of officials that are grappling with how to do this. I think they recognize that the war is not going Ukraine's way right now. And I think they recognize there are real limits on what the United States and NATO can do to change the situation on the battlefield. And when you recognize that, you inevitably have to think about, well, what are our alternatives? Uh, is a settlement possible? How do we get there? Um, and and uh, so there's no question they're thinking about it. The, the real question is, is there the confidence politically to pursue that? It requires some political courage. Um, it requires some confidence. You know, we talk about negotiating from a position of strength. That strength is not just military strength. It, it, it also is strength of character. It's, it's political and societal confidence. And I think that's what we're lacking right now, the confidence to believe that we can compromise with the Russians and still survive and even thrive which I think objectively is true. We can do this, but we, I think, lack the confidence in ourselves that we're actually able to do that. And the tragedy, and I will end with this, is that is the E word. This is an election year, not just in the United States, but across much of the globe, actually, including um, the European parliamentary elections mid-year, which is rarely been an occasion for profiles and courage if I can steal a phrase, uh, in the negotiating, <laughs> at the negotiating table. George, thank you very much. Uh, 
again, congratulations on your willingness to stand up and, 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 and discuss this. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for the invitation today. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Thinking for New World. I'm Alan Stoga, podcast host, and I look forward to your joining our next conversation. Remember, tell us what you think at telbergfoundation.org.